Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 479, The Dynasty, Part 2. The story of Hatoyama Kazuo, the progenitor of the Hatoyama dynasty, is the story of a very odd man for his time. He was a committed liberal during an age where liberalism was very much an outsider ideology. He was a politician who never fully embraced that vacation, instead splitting his time between politics and the law. And he was a liberal who ended up joining the Seiyukai, a party that in many ways served to launder the ambitions of pro-government oligarchs like Ito Hirabumi through the fig leaf of liberalism, driven by an inexplicable rift between himself and a man who previously had been one of his foremost boosters. To be fair, Hatayama Kazuo was not the only Japanese liberal to make that choice, but still, it was an odd one. All of this is to say that Kazuo doesn't exactly look like the kind of guy to launch his family into the upper rungs of Japan's political elite. Indeed, arguably, he wasn't even a very good politician, because he was absolutely terrible at the kind of horse trading and backroom deals you really need to succeed in the field. So it's really his eldest son, Hatoyama Ichiro, who is, in many ways, the foundational figure of the Hatoyama dynasty, and the one we're going to spend the most time with. Ichiro, who was, as the name implies, the eldest son, was born in 1883 in Tokyo, right at the start of his father's political career. In many ways, his upbringing was traditional for a boy from an elite family during the Meiji years. He attended a series of extremely elite schools founded by the new government, culminating in a graduation from the Daiichi Kotogakko, an elite government-run high school, in 1903. If you've been following the podcast for a very long time, yes, that's the one with the really good baseball team. From there, he would head where else but the Tokyo Imperial University School of Law, graduating in 1907 and shortly thereafter marrying Terada Kaoru, daughter of another elite family in the New Order. Her father was a judge and member of the upper house of the Diet, the unelected House of Peers. So far, so normal for the child of an elite family. But Hatoyama Ichiro's upbringing was unusual in one respect. The normative gender roles of the time placed a great deal of onus on the father to be strict and stern, driving children to succeed, especially eldest sons, who were to be treated very much like heirs to the family business in the traditional model. Mothers, meanwhile, were expected to fulfill the idea of Ryosai Kenbo, the good wife and wise mother, being supportive and nurturing and all that jazz. The Hatoyamas operated differently. Kazuo was, by all accounts, a doting father who was very gentle and not really at all interested in pushing his kids out of their comfort zone. For example, Ichiro had a younger brother, Hideo, born the year after him. Hideo was a very bookish kid and had no inclination to follow his father into public service, despite Kazuo's desire for him to do so. However, Kazuo never attempted to steer his son towards that outcome. As Hideo would later recollect, quote, My father never imposed his orders on me. He only expressed his hope that I would enter the real world rather than staying in academia and make actual contributions to society. Yet he consented when I said I was suited for study. I respected him as a person more than as our father. 
Hatoyama Ichiro would later recall much the same. Quote, There's nothing easy about being kind. My father was truly kind. He was warm to the bottom of his heart. We, his two sons, have never seen him raise his voice or scold for 28 years, during which we lived together. He used to say that it is unpleasant to scold people, so he did not. I have no memory of our father even yelling at us. It is understandable for my brother because he was a quiet boy, but I was wild. I remember only one occasion where he punished me. When I was three or four, I did something naughty and he took me to the bathroom. He poured water on my head, but even at that time he did not yell at me. Very few people could take such a calm attitude. So, leaving aside both the ethics and parental efficacy of dumping water on the heads of small children, which, yes, is a big aside, but bear with me, the natural question is, Kazuo clearly was not going to force his kids into a family business, and yet Ichiro ended up following pretty much exactly the trajectory you'd expect from the first son of a politician. So, what gives? The answer is that it was Ichiro's mother, Hatoyama Haruko, who really drove her son into the family business of public service. As a reminder, Haruko was an extremely well-educated woman who had trained as a teacher and been prepared to go overseas to the U.S. for study before having her plans frustrated by conservative government leaders. Instead, she married Kazuo, and arguably directed all her ambitions into her eldest son. Ichiro would later recall that she told him she'd been reading him biographies of famous politicians literally from the time he was still in the womb, Apparently, she also shut down an early suggestion from his teachers that he go into engineering when he proved that he had a talent for science and math. Instead, she was always very clear with her eldest boy. He was going to follow his father into politics and do the one thing that Kazuo, with his unwillingness to cut deals, had never managed to do, become a cabinet minister. Kazuo, you might remember from last week, had never made it past vice minister. And all pretty much unfolded the way Hatoyama Haruko wanted it to. When Hatoyama Kazuo died in 1911, it was Hideko who wrote to one of the major leaders of his Seiyukai party, Hara Takashi, asking him to take Ichiro under his political wing. She'd made sure he was prepared for politics by setting up his educational trajectory through the Tokyo Imperial University Law School, despite his middling grades, particularly compared to his brother Hideo, on most subjects relevant to that field. She essentially set up Ichiro's whole career. And it worked. In 1912, Ichiro ran for his father's now-vacant spot in the Tokyo City Assembly with the backing of Haratakashi and the Seiyukai. He won handily, but could not contest his father's spot in the House of Representatives for the National Diet because he was only 28, and you had to be 30 or older to run for the House of Representatives. So he had to wait for the next general election in 1915 to run for and win a spot in the National Diet. Which, by the way, for those of you playing along at home, means that so far, by 1915, Japan has had 15 general elections, and only 1912 didn't have a Hatoyama on the ballot. Of the 14 other elections where a Hatoyama had been on the ballot, they had won 13 of them. Hatoyama Ichiro himself would go on to win re-election to his Tokyo district 14 consecutive times, barring a brief interlude we will talk about later, 
remaining in the Diet all the way until 1959. Twice, he would win his election by the widest margin ever recorded, a record that would hold for several decades until it was broken by none other than the LDP corruption king himself, Tanaka Kakue. I think it is fair to credit the lion's share of that political trajectory to Hatoyama Hideko, and to call her, as Ito Mayumi does in her work on the Hatoyama family, the godmother of this political dynasty. And oh, what a career it would be. In addition to winning 15 total general elections, Hatoyama Ichiro would eventually become one of the biggest names in Japanese politics. In part, this was because he had inherited from his father a talent for getting people to genuinely like him as a person. Ito Mayumi relates an anecdote from the 1920s where Hatoyama diffused a public critic of his, a Chinese resident of Japan, by going to his house, a pretty substantial concession of status, as making a house call is something you do for a social superior. Once he was there, he offered the man a bottle of booze he'd received from the Chinese warlord Zhang Zuolin. Over the course of drinking the bottle, the two became fast friends. Hatoyama, simply put, knew how to work people, and in a field like politics where popularity is so much a part of the practice, knowing how to work people is, well, most of the work. I think it is fair to call him more politically savvy than his father, and that, combined with his status as the political protege of Hara Takashi, led to a meteoric rise for this young man. You see, if the name Hara Takashi sounds familiar, it's because he's the first real democratically elected prime minister in Japanese history. While Okuma Shigenobu had gotten the job in 1898, thanks to the massive supermajority of his Kenseito, and the electoral rebuke the government received at the polls, that had been a one-off concession by the emperor and his advisors. Hara was the man who forced a change to the rules around the selection of the prime minister. Specifically, he took advantage of a political crisis in 1918, where volatile rice prices caused by a collapse in demand after World War I triggered anti-government riots. The government was forced to make concessions to rein in popular sentiment, which included the right for the head of the largest party in the Diet to take over the prime ministership. Admittedly, Hara didn't get to enjoy the prestige of his new role as the godfather of a more genuinely democratic system in Imperial Japan for long. In 1921, he was assassinated on his way to a Seiyukai party meeting by a right-wing fanatic. However, both during and after his life, his name carried a lot of weight among Japanese liberals and especially Seiyukai members, so it didn't exactly hurt Hatoyama Ichiro to be associated with him. And it was these factors, Hatoyama's smoothness as a political operator and ability to win people over with his charm, and his relationship with Hara Takashi, which do a lot to explain his meteoric rise within the Seiyukai. By 1924, he was the Speaker of Tokyo's Assembly, much as his father had been. Two years later, he became the General Secretary of the Seiyukai, an enormously powerful position because the Secretary General of the party is its organizational boss and can use his influence over the party's operations to favor his political friends and guide the people he wants into positions of power. I should also note that unlike his father, Hatoyama Ichiro was not particularly reticent about the idea of mixing money with politics, and this didn't hurt him either. 
Kazuo either out of a sense of samurai-esque disdain for money, or a belief in its corrosive impact on liberal politics, or both, generally eschewed the idea of trying to become wealthy. He even ran his own political campaigns largely on volunteers and IOUs. The Hatoyamas weren't exactly uncomfortable on his government salary, but they were not among the supremely wealthy either. Ichiro had no such qualms and actively invested the family wealth, using that money in turn to fuel his own political machine. Beyond his repeated electoral victories, the most visible remnant of Ichiro's willingness to enter the world of finance is his family estate. After his birth home was destroyed in the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923, he rebuilt on the 1.1-acre lot he'd inherited from his father. You can still see the result today. The Hatoyama Kaikan, or Hatoyama Hall, is in the Otoa neighborhood of Tokyo, northwest of the Imperial Palace. It is a very striking example of early 20th century elite architecture in Japan, but more indicative of its legacy, I think, is that in Ichiro's heyday, it was nicknamed the Otoa Goten, or Otoa Palace. To be fair, Hatoyama Ichiro was not the only politician to do this. Indeed, money-driven politics became an increasing issue over the course of 20th century history in Japan. In addition to investing, many politicians during the pre-war period took money from the Zaibatsu, the major economic conglomerates that dominated Japan's economy, in exchange for political favors. In a pattern familiar to pretty much any observer of electoral politics, the Zaibatsu would give gifts to politicians for their re-election, and in exchange, said politicians just so happened to vote for policies that favored the Zaibatsu. One of the major factors that led to the masses of Japan turning against the liberal political parties and democracy in general was actually the sense the parties were hopelessly tainted by their close political relationship with the Zaibatsu. I was unable to find much out about Hatoyama Ichiro's specific relationship with the Zaibatsu, but it wouldn't surprise me if he had one, certainly. He was implicated in one of the great scandals of the 1930s, the Teijin Incident, where a group of investors were accused of illegally manipulating stock prices to make money off their purchase of shares in Teijin, a textile firm. However, that whole scandal proved to be a frame-up. Episodes 323 and 324 go into more details if you want them. All of which is to say that Hatoyama Ichiro certainly did play the game of money-power politics, but so far as I know, didn't break any rules or do anything that was atypical for politicians of his time period. How you feel about that is, of course, up to you. Hatoyama Ichiro was also in a bit of an odd position, because of the makeup of the Seiyukai in general. Remember, the Seiyukai had emerged as a party out of a merger between Itagaki Taisuke's old Jiuto, or Liberal Party, which had been a major force of the anti-government opposition in the late 1800s, with supporters of the conservative oligarchic movement. The whole experiment had been conceived of by the conservative oligarch Ito Hirobumi, who, depending on who you asked, either hoped to make a unity party which would bridge political divides, or defang liberalism as a movement by co-opting its supporters. The Seiyukai was enormously successful in pre-war Japan because of its wide-ranging background. It was a predecessor, in that sense, to the big-tent conservatism of the modern liberal democratic party. 
But the party also had a weird identity crisis that was reflected in Hatoyama Ichiro's career. As the Japanese government began to teeter towards and then eventually fall outright into militarism, driven by a trifecta of right-wing military officers, bureaucrats who despised the elected government, and oligarchic aristocrats who resented democratic interference in their prerogatives, the Seiyukai too found itself torn between liberals wanting to resist those trends and conservatives who wanted to embrace them. Hatoyama Ichiro generally followed the pattern of his father in leaning towards the liberal end of the spectrum. For example, he briefly quit the party in the mid-1920s over a political spat that split the Seiyukai over the issue of whether to support a series of government-backed unity parliaments set up in the wake of Hara Takashi's assassination to try and calm the political waters. Ichiro and a few other principled liberals refused to go along with what they saw as unwarranted government interference in the electoral system, propped up by the guise of unity after an assassination of one of their own. However, they were willing to compromise around the eventual resolution of the crisis. In the final deals that resolved it, Hatoyama and his fellow liberals got support from the unity cabinets for something they had wanted for a very long time, the extension of suffrage or the right to vote, to all adult men 25 or older, where previously you had to pay a certain amount of taxes to be able to vote. However, Hatoyama and his fellow travelers made a fateful compromise to get that deal. They agreed to a sweeping new law to be passed at the same time that would allow the government extreme leeway to crack down on so-called subversion. That law, the Peace Preservation Act of 1925, included passages outlawing any attempt to, quote, alter the character of the Japanese state, unquote, a vague turn of phrase that justified crackdowns on basically any and all dissent, and which would become a core component of the wartime military state. Similarly, Hatoyama Ichiro did finally fulfill the family ambition of becoming a cabinet minister when he became education minister in 1931, just in time for the complete implosion of Japanese democracy. Specifically, Hatoyama was tapped as education minister by Inukai Tsuyoshi, who became prime minister under the auspices of the Seiyukai after a political crisis triggered by the army's unauthorized invasion of Manchuria in northeastern China. The civilian government's inability to rein in the radical army elements behind the invasion who then went on to establish a pro-Japanese puppet regime once again without the authorization of the central government, led to the resignation of Prime Minister Wakatsuki Reijiro and his replacement by Inukai Tsuyoshi, an ex-military man in addition to being part of the Seiyukai, it was therefore hoped he could reason with the military. Instead, Inukai was assassinated by right-wing radical officers in May 1932. This moment essentially marked the end of parliamentary politics in pre-war Japan. After Inukai's assassination, the emperor's advisors took advantage of the political ferment to walk back the rule about selecting the leader of the largest party as prime minister. Instead, the anti-democratic aristocrats around the emperor pushed forward a series of unity candidates from the military and aristocracy who were to bridge political divides, which were caused, of course, in part, in their eyes, by the very existence of political parties. Politicians from the Seiyukai and the other parties did not object. After all, objecting meant risking their own lives, just as Inukai had. 
However, sitting cabinet ministers like Hatoyama Ichiro also had to make a choice. Would they stay on and serve in the cabinets of these new governments, or would they quit in protest? Ichiro chose to stay, and that proved to be a pretty important and formative choice down the line, once again compromising in exchange for access to the halls of power. His time as education minister in the early 1930s would see him wrapped up in the increasingly anti-democratic politics of the time as a result. For example, Hatoyama Ichiro was on the front lines of what was euphemistically known as the Takigawa Incident of 1933, a moment which would come to haunt his political career going forward. The Takigawa in question was Takigawa Yukitoki, a professor of law at Kyoto Imperial University. In the wake of Prime Minister Inukai's assassination in 1932, the subsequent unity governments dominated by the military began to push for reconciliation by removing views that were, in their eyes, helping to drive all this dissent and tearing Japan apart. The people doing this, notably, were not the ultra-rightists who were actually, you know, killing people, but instead anyone who was questioning the kokutai, the national essence of Japan as embodied by the emperor. In that spirit, Ichiro came under pressure as education minister to crack down on unorthodox educators, education being one of the last bastions of both liberal and leftist sentiment in the lead-up to World War II. In particular, the education ministry had the power to approve textbooks used at all levels of education, and Hatoyama Ichiro eventually caved in on demands to ban a criminal law textbook that Professor Takigawa had published. Apparently, Takigawa's claims that some form of criminal deviancy had social roots were Marxist, and so Hatoyama announced that Takigawa's textbook was banned and that he was being suspended. He also requested that the university president, Konishi Shiganao, fire Takigawa. Konishi refused to do so. The decision led to all of the other 39 members of the law faculty at Kyoto Imperial University resigning, as well as massive student protests and boycotts of classes. The whole thing ended only when Hatoyama stepped in once again to go over Konishi's head and fire Takigawa directly. Hatoyama Ichiro would later claim that this and other moments where he clamped down on dissent as education minister, such as firing a bunch of dissident secondary school teachers in Nagano Prefecture, were due to pressure from the military. Certainly, they do not fit his politics as they are commonly understood. But the fact remains that he could have resigned as education minister rather than going ahead with policies he disagreed with, and he chose not to. In 1934, Hatoyama did decide to give up his role as education minister, and from this point on did become more overt in his protests against militarism. For example, in January 1936, he wrote an article for the prestigious Chuo Koron magazine, where he said, quote, I feel as if I am a bystander of politics. Liberalism and parliamentarianism are being pushed back by dictatorial forces. It might be advantageous for politicians to go along with the current trend rather than challenging it. However, I cannot ingratiate myself with the military as others do. I believe in the philosophy that one should realize self-actualization according to self-imposed rules, rejecting the intervention of others. It is very dangerous for the Japanese to try and imitate Hitler and Mussolini. It is human nature to seek freedom, 
and it is a mistake to oppress it. That specific piece, by the way, put him on the kill list for the fascist officers of the Japanese military who unsuccessfully attempted a coup the very next month, though they were unable to locate him before the coup was suppressed. To his credit, that news did not deter Hatoyama. In December of the very same year, he wrote in a similar vein for Kaizo, another magazine, that, quote, the forces of fascism are suppressing party politics, limiting the power of parliament, and rejecting cabinets formed by the political parties. Nevertheless, party politics is not dead and will re-emerge. This more aggressive stance against the military government, which by this point was pretty openly opposed to parliamentary government even if the diet itself remained in operation, put Hatoyama on the political outs. He did become the acting president of the Seiyukai by 1936, but despite the party's majority in the parliament on paper, the constitution didn't require the party to be included in the cabinet, so functionally it didn't really matter. By 1940, the party itself and every other political party which hadn't already been outlawed because it was opposed to the national essence of the country was dissolved and forced to merge into the Taisei Yoksankai, or Imperial Rule Assistance Association. It is to Hatoyama's credit that he refused to participate in what was, by the admission of the IRAA's own founders, an attempt to create a national party along the lines of the Nazis or Italian fascists. And it's a testament to his political talents that he still managed to win re-election as an independent in the 1942 general election during the war years, when only independents and IRAA members were allowed to run for office. This despite the fact that several of his supporters, as well as Hatoyama Ichiro himself, were detained during the lead-up to the election on suspicion of anti-government activity, though so far as I know, no charges were actually filed. Still, during the war years, he, and really all elected politicians, were very much on the sidelines of politics, so we're going to leave him for a bit to talk quickly about his personal life. As I mentioned at the very start of the episode, Hatoyama Ichiro was married before his political career even began, to Hatoyama Kaoru, née Terada, the daughter of another political family, though her father was a judge, not a politician. By all accounts, it was a fairly happy marriage, though that may have been because Kaoru was more or less chosen for the role by Ichiro's mother. Hatoyama Haruko knew of the girl from a young age. They were distantly related, as Kaoru's mother was Haruko's niece. Haruko apparently saw something in the kid because when the young girl's mother died, Haruko took her in, and eventually began to groom her as both a potential political wife for Ichiro and an heir to her own work. After Kazuo's death, Haruko had become very involved in Kyoritsu Women's University, a private university in Tokyo founded as a part of a growing push for women's education. Eventually, she would become its headmistress. Hatoyama Kaoru would eventually succeed her in that role, and of course would end up marrying Ichiro. The couple had six children, five daughters, and one son. The five daughters were Yuriko, Reiko, Setsuko, Keiko, and Nobuko. And, profoundly confusingly, their one son was Hatoyama Ichiro, a name I am going to do my best to enunciate as clearly as possible to distinguish him from his father, Hatoyama Ichiro. Also, I'm going to probably try and insert some seniors and juniors in there just for clarity. Anyway, of these six children, 
Only Ichiro, the younger, born in 1918, went into politics. Not unexpectedly, given that women were not even allowed to vote in Japan until 1947, and could only run for local offices in some prefectures. Honestly, I looked, but couldn't even find much about the five daughters and what they did with their lives beyond who they married. Pretty much all industrialists, bank executives, and other political families, if you're wondering. Kaoru was also an extremely active campaigner for her husband, much as Hatoyama Haruko had been for Hatoyama Kazuo in his day. A longtime political foe of Hatoyama Ichiro, turned political friend, Miki Bukichi, would later complain that he was a good enough politician to defeat Hatoyama Ichiro in a straight-up electoral fight, but he was not good enough, he said, to take on and beat Hatoyama Haruko and Hatoyama Kaoru. If you're seeing a pattern there, there's a good reason. The whole Hatoyama family narrative is important for Japanese politics, but it's also a very male-centric story. Women factor in, to be sure, but in roles that position their stories as secondary. Kaoru and Haruko and all of Kaoru's five daughters are a part of the story in so much as they help win elections or push the family ambition forward, but not really beyond that. That position, in turn, is very much a product of the gender norms of the Empire period, which enjoined women to be ryosai kenbo, good wives and wise mothers, in other words, to define themselves primarily in relationship to the men in their lives. This went doubly for women of political families, of course, who by definition lived their lives in the spotlight, and were thus expected to embody and model these values to an even greater extent. That issue, of course, is certainly not limited to Japan. Just think about the amount of scrutiny given to the families or personal lives of politicians in the U.S. It very much comes with the territory. It's hard to be sure how the women of the Hatoyama family felt about this, to be honest. After all, when you've been socialized to see the world this way, it can be hard to escape that mindset. To be fair, nobody who married into the Hatoyama family could have been surprised about what it was they were signing up for. One imagines it was harder on those five daughters, born into political roles they had no choice about. As for Hatoyama Ichiro, the younger, he was among his parents' younger kids, born again in 1918. As a result, he was just finishing up his schooling, graduating, of course, from Tokyo Imperial University's School of Law, by this point pretty much a feeder for all elite families, when the Second World War began. As Haruko had done with Ichiro, pushing him to excel in classes and actualize his potential as a student, so too did Kaoru with Ichiro, supposedly going as far as to encourage her husband to buy a villa in Karuizawa in the cool mountains northwest of Tokyo, where her boy could study in the hot summer months. Hatoyama Ichiro the younger, however, did not care for politics. He rebelled against the family expectations placed upon him by his mother and his father that he go into that field and instead joined the Ministry of Finance. Then, when the war started, he decided to volunteer for a spot in the Imperial Japanese Navy. Fortunately for him, particularly compared to the army, this was a relatively safe posting. He was actually stationed in the Nanyo area and spent a good chunk of the war on truck, which was heavily bombed but never invaded by the Americans. However, the breakdown of war communications was such that the Navy actually assumed he had died and listed him as killed in action. They even sent a wreath to his parents in Otoa. 
In fact, he was just stranded when the war ended. He was not repatriated to Japan until the end of 1945. One imagines the reemergence of a son thought dead was a bit of a shock, albeit a good one, to the family. We will leave the story of Hatoyama Ichiro, the younger, here, but we'll pick it back up in two weeks. Given their experiences with it, one imagines there was a fair amount of relief on the part of father, son, and the whole family when the war finally did end and the wartime regime was removed from power. Indeed, on paper, the new year of 1946 looked great for the Hatoyamas. Ichiro the Younger, safely back at home after his experience of war, was now looking at a far safer career as a bureaucrat in the finance ministry, one his parents didn't really approve of, but still it's better than nothing. Ichiro the Elder, meanwhile, seemed like a natural fit for participation in, and possibly leadership of, the new American-backed democratic government installed by the occupation. After all, he was one of the most experienced politicians Japan had, and had a staunch record of opposition to the wartime government which would make him palatable to the Americans. Hatoyama Ichiro was so convinced of his prospects that he even organized a new political party within three months of war's end, dusting off an old name to do so. He revived the name Jiuto, or Liberal Party, whose members had once formed the core of the Seiyukai, which had been his political home for so many years. Coming into 1946, the situation looked great for the Jiuto. The discrediting of the wartime regime had left only really two political alternatives going forward. First were the socialists, whose leaders had been let out of prison en masse by the Americans as part of the dismantling of the wartime regime, and whose popularity was being massively bolstered by the impoverished conditions of the post-war era. The others were liberals like Hatoyama himself, whose ideas were after all based on the foundational principles of the US and United Kingdom, and hadn't the superiority of those principles just been proven in more or less the most decisive way they could be. If things went well, he might even have a shot at the top job of them all, Prime Minister. At the start of the occupation, that post had been given by the Emperor, who still had that power because he was operating under the old imperial constitution until 1947, when the new one was voted in by the Diet, to Shidehara Kijiro. Shidehara was an old diplomat with a pro-American reputation, but he was also a placeholder. He'd be replaced in a general election slated for May of 1946 by whoever led the winning party and the Liberals had a real shot at being that party. The election took place on April 10th, 1946, and the results were decisive. The Liberals picked up 141 seats out of 468, enough in conjunction with another conservative party, confusingly the Progressive Party, to give them control of the Diet. Hatoyama Ichiro would be the Prime Minister. Or at least, it looked that way until a proclamation came down from the Occupation General Headquarters, ensconced in the Daiichi Seimei building in Tokyo overlooking the Imperial Palace, on May 4, 1946. That proclamation announced a new wave in the wide-ranging purges of politicians who were viewed as having supported the aggressive policies of the wartime government. And on the list of names was Hatoyama Ichiro. Why, you might ask? Well, we'll get into it more next week, but 
his participation from 1932 to 1934 as education minister in those unity governments set up by the military after the assassination of Prime Minister Inukai, and his purging of dissidents like Takigawa Yukitoki in that role, caused some in the American leadership to question Hatoyama's liberal bona fides. Simply put, because he'd stuck with those unity governments rather than resigning after Inukai was assassinated, he was, arguably, a collaborator with the wartime government, regardless of his later opposition. Hatoyama was forced to give up leadership of the liberals to his second-in-command, a diplomat who jumped into politics by the name of Yoshida Shigeru. And so Yoshida, not Hatoyama, became prime minister. Hatoyama himself was instead banned from politics for an indefinite length of time. He would go into self-perceived exile, leaving Tokyo for the countryside, where he would, among other things, spend a great deal of time on translation and scholarship, in particular translating Richard Codenhove's The Totalitarian State Against Man, a classic treatise of liberalism. When, or even if, he would return to politics was anyone's guess. We'll find his fade out next week, but for now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This show is a part of the Facing Backward podcast network. You can find out more about this show and our other shows at facingbackward.com. You can support the network at patreon.com slash facingbackward. Special thanks to those who have given at our shout-out tier, Jan Leonard, Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Ian Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, Alayla McCulloch, Karen Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prine, William, Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jerry Spinrad, Jared Stevens, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Hrushka, Joshua Kane, Robbie and Cat, Jacob Key, Aaron Finkbeiner, A House is a Perfectly Cromulent Mascot, and The Fish I Catch Are Rhodes Scholars, compared to Samuel Alito, Schmuck. Special thanks also to new patron Lee for donating to the History of Japan Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part three.